What up, homies? What up, 33%? How you living? I ain't gonna say that again. Um, I am not here today. I'm actually flying back from L.A. You're listening to this on Tuesday, or really whenever time is irrelevant. It's the internet. But um, I'm recording an intro just so that you know that we're going to get to some things later in the week, coming up in a little bit, like a minute, is Ross Tucker. He talks about how competitive Tom Brady was when he was snapping the ball to him. He talks about sounds. He talks about Drew Bledsoe. It's very funny. He talks about the four conversations that he had with Bill Belichick during the year plus that he was there. Uh, And we even go into what's it like to be an Eagles fan. And then the next year you're playing for the Cowboys. All good stuff. That's coming up in a second. On Thursday, we are going to get to the best competitors and the winner of the Eat Like a Homie 33 Day Challenge. I have all of your stuff, all of your media. I'm going to go over it and see who did the best, who has the best story, and we'll figure out how to work this out with Travel Gaines. And we will recap the best pool dunk quarterback rankings and see who earned the number one spot. But now it is time for my conversation with podcast magnet and former NFL offensive lineman, Ross Tucker. Enjoy, homies. All right, let me do one final check. And Ross Tucker, according to my Twitter account, you have 199.9 thousand followers. <laughs> and it is fucking killing me. Because you walked in, you're like, I think I have 200. And I was like, dude, I've been checking it. How long have you been at 199.9? Uh, I don't know how long I've been at 199.9, but I've been at 199 for a while. But you know what's weird? I, oh, one ninety nine nine two six. Wow, is what it says. What's crazy about though, is on my laptop it says two hundred. Uh. Like on my laptop it rounds up. Yeah, but it doesn't round up on on uh, on my phone. My phone says one hundred ninety nine thousand. So one of my main questions was like. I, you've probably passed so many milestones. First time you got to 10,000. First time you got to 100. Yeah. But each time, are you like, because I know like when I was at like 29.9 thousand, I was like, get the fucking 30. Let's do this. Yeah. You know what? I mean, I just feel like this, this sounds bad, but like there's a lot of people in the hundreds. Like you get to 200,000. Ah. There's a lot of people who you look and it's like they got 128,000 or 142,000. Yeah. You get over 200,000. It's like. Pretty good. Yeah. And and I don't think, I mean, I've never bought any. I know people can, Oof. but I've never bought any. I don't bought any because I just buy any because I just don't want to get found out. Like, I don't want, like, Darren Ravel to do a piece that's like, one of the most fake accounts is Adam Lefko. Yeah, that's like, a bad look. That. Yeah, but I, I will that. say this. A couple times my account has dropped when they've, like, cleaned out the bots or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I never, I never paid for them at any, at any rate. Ross Tucker, huge bot guy. Uh, <laughs> happy to have you in. You had me on your podcast. Glad for you to yes. be here. Um, this is making me feel very bad, by the way. Poor Kay. So my podcast like you just put a headset on and somebody like calls in and it's just audio like you're in this unbelievable office and then we're in this room where we've got cameras everywhere looking at me like you are you how many podcasts you're making me feel bad about myself bullshit because how many podcasts do you do a week uh a bunch Ross Tucker football podcast fantasy feast even money's for gambling the college draft podcast but the thing is Ross Tucker football podcast Three times a week and during the season, I do that daily. 
So you have like I you do have nine your own a week channel. during the season. Nine a week. Yeah. So for me, what I realized is because a lot of what my off season show has been is more interview based. Yes. I can't do interviews over the phone. It's just I'm an interrupter, and like so on the phone, yeah. that makes it hard. And since I'm only doing two right now in the off season, it's like let me do more in person, real stuff. It's so much better. But once the season starts, it's nuts. Because we're all trying to keep up with that constant flow of game, and then a Thursday game, and then a Monday game, and then the storylines change. Well, you know what's funny is if I had to do it over again. So I finished playing in 2008. I retired, and I was writing for Sports Illustrated, and ESPN hired me away to write for them, and they said, do you want to host our podcast? I was like, yeah. Literally had no idea what a podcast was. I don't even have an iPhone. I mean, I, I had no idea what a po- uh, podcast was, but I knew they were going to pay me to talk about football. Yes. So I said yes. So they had a format where it was like during the season every day, and it was more or less like your 30 to 60 minutes of NFL news consumption for the day. Sure. So that's what I did. And then after three years, kind of built that up and went out on my own. It's been a great venture for me. But in hindsight... I would never do a podcast that's time sensitive because I, you know, during the season, it's every day, Monday, Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I don't want to change it now because I don't want to change, you know, I've got a pretty good built up audience at now. At the same I don't, point, you put out that Tuesday podcast at like eight in the morning and then at 1030 news breaks. Right. Kicks well, right okay. So, so, so that stinks, but then I'm coming back the next day. Yeah, true, true, true. So, but like I tell people now, like I go to the NFL's broadcast boot camp every year, and there's always guys there, and they're like, oh, what, are, what, what should I do? And I'm talking to, you know, a uh, bunch of guys, like Penn State guys, like, like Matt McGloin and, sure. and Mike Mowdy and those guys. I'm like, whatever you do, don't start a time-sensitive podcast, mm. and don't start a podcast that you know, talking about the NFL or talking about college football. I'm like, you know what you guys should do? You should have a podcast that's called Legends of Penn State Football and you interview Matt Millen mm. and Franco Harris because then people can listen to them whenever yeah. and forever. Yeah. Like my 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 Monday podcast, like during the season, maybe that's a bad example because I'm breaking down all the games, but a lot of times by the time I do the next podcast, Nobody gives a shit about the podcast before. I know. And it makes it really hard to get huge numbers that way. You, I feel like you get huge numbers if people can always care about your mm. podcast, if it's, that makes sense. Which, the, but what you're doing right now, all these interviews you've been doing, which have been awesome. Oh, thanks, you had man. my college roommate, Kyle Brandt, on. That's so funny that you guys were roommates together. Was it a signed roommate, or did you guys pick each other because you played football together? Uh, football, fraternity, and same eating club. If we're gonna stay on the topic of yeah. food, so how much did you weigh, like the in your peak playing career? I would typically go into training camp between three twenty and three twenty five. Wow! And like back then, I could. Ha- and what I, do you think your natural weight was? I don't know what that means. You know, in all sincerity, everybody always asks me that, and yeah. I never know. I'll say this. Because I don't think people realize that offensive linemen have to work to be big. They well, just think they're naturally huge. Well, there's you're either one of two ways. There are some guys that have to like get up every oh, three man. hours and have six more hard-boiled eggs. Like Trent Brown was in here. That man doesn't need to eat to gain weight. Trent he, Brown fit in this room. It's. Inc- I thought he was going to break the chair. Is that not unbelievable? His hands like are so big, but no, he's the kind of guy that has to eat healthy and train. But then there's the I would imagine the smaller white guards that have to be the ones that bulk up. Yeah. So I I actually now have to work harder to stay down. Mm. I was, I'm was i not a guy that had to work to get up. 
I know guys that really had to work to stay at 300 pounds. I wasn't like that. But, dude, I would, I would go to Chipotle and get two burritos and just house them both. I remember in high school when I was really growing. Did it feel like a free pass? Because everyone's out there worrying about that stuff. And when you're an offensive lineman, you're kind of like, fuck you, I'm eating two. I never, it didn't seem like a free pass because it just seemed normal. It only seemed like a free pass if the person I was with commented about it. Gotcha. But I'm, I'm not even joking. Like in high school when I was really growing, I went from 5'9", 150, ninth grade, 6'1", 170, 10th grade, 6'3", 210, 6'4", 250. I would go to Subway. I would get two footlongs, <laughs> double meat, bacon, and my, my you know, we, we'd be with like girls. Like it's like a Friday night, and yeah. a girl would get a six-inch like turkey or something. You'd be like, you finish would, that? I would get two footlongs and destroy them. But on wheat, though, because I'm crazy healthy like that. Yeah. On wheat. So I, I would have on two footlongs. <laughs> I mean, like... What? And that was like my normal. And then I see that you wrote, when you retired, you did an hour of cardio every morning at 5 a.m., Cheerios and skim milk at 7, 80 calorie yogurt at 10, turkey sandwich with mustard on wheat bread at 1, apple at 4, two chicken tenders on the George Foreman grill. You were eating like around 1,000 calories when you were retired. Like when you retired, did you just say, I'm shedding all of this? So I've heard that you only go one of two ways. You either balloon up or you drop it right away. I, I hurt my neck on the wedge against the Ravens. I herniated my C5, C6, bruised my spinal cord, and I was so upset about that. You know, football was my identity. You know, and it's not like, like you know, I have other interests in life and, like, I went to Princeton or whatever, but, like, what, anywhere I went starting, like, junior year high school, people were like, there's Ross Tucker, the football player. And Ross really, Tucker, comma, football player. Yes, and yeah. even since sixth grade, even if other people didn't look at me like that, since sixth grade, I looked at myself like that. Like, I liked being, like, I, you know, I always see these guys that are like, I'm so much more than a football player. I can do this. I can do, like, and that's fine. Like, I never, I never had a desire to be that guy that beats my chest as I'm so much more than a football player. Like, no, I'm Ross Tucker, the effing football player. Like, mm. I, I love that. So to have that in one snap, I said to the doctor, I'm like, what do you think? He's like, uh, he did stuff with my fingers and toes that showed I bruised my spinal cord. Damn. When I did my C5, he's like, dude, you're 28. He probably didn't say dude, but he said, you're 28. <laughs> you know, you went to Princeton. Like, you got to get a real job now. He said, once your spinal cord's been compromised or affected, yeah. he's like, it's just not. So I was real upset about that. And the only way I could um, get that energy out I had to immediately put all of my football energy into something else. Yeah. And all of the uh, sadness and anger and whatever about it being over finally, I put it all into losing weight. Mm. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you, I think when I got hurt, I was like 315. It was like third preseason game. By Christmas, I was 248. Is that healthy? I don't think so. Lose so. like seventy. I don't think it is. Like and months? I wasn't. And I wasn't lifting at all. I was rehabbing my neck and just doing an hour cardio in the morning, and then another like thirty minutes to an hour in the afternoon. You said my diet. I was so hungry, Adam, and so miserable. Oh man! That I, when I ate those two George Foreman chicken tenders at seven, I would go to bed at like seven thirty. My wife was studying for business school because she knew my football was over. It was like her turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was like, "Go to bed," because I was so you. Would just snap. I was so angry. I was so hungry. Yeah. She's like, if, if, if it got past like 8.30, I would be like, 
she could just tell I was angry. I was so hungry. She's like, just go to bed, Ross. I don't want to get in a fight with you tonight. Just go to bed. So listen, I've been doing for, it's 33 days of eating like a homie because the listeners are the 33%. So we've all been challenging ourselves to eat healthy. And uh, one of the questions that I get a lot is, what do you do at night when it sucks? And the advice I usually say is brush your teeth. Because yes. then you don't want to eat anything. But I'm glad you're saying this so that people out there know that they're not alone. Because that nighttime is the worst. It is the worst. You know what's weird? Uh, so I did like the small meals every three hours for like 10 years. And it kind of stopped working. Mm. And by the way, so I started to do media. You're going to love this. I started to do media. And I have a huge head, right? <laughs> so a little. I mean, I have a big head. I have like a size 8 or whatever. So, oh, wow. So I... um. I went on outside the lines with Bob Lee, and it was some like the real, legend. yeah, it was some like real serious topic, and I'm wearing like a suit and tie, okay, and I didn't lift for five months, and you know my neck was a little atrophied because I hurt it, right? So I'm on with Bob Lee on outside the lines, and I'm in some studio here in New York, I think, and Bob's asking me a question. I'm like, that's a good question, Bob, and looking that's like why a bobblehead, bobblehead, dude, bobblehead. My wife watched <laughs> that. I'm like, what do you think? She's like. I think you need to do some shrugs or something. She's like, you look like a Bob. She's like, you look like a skinny nerd. You look like, like my wife's the person, like she fell in love with me when I was 300 pounds. Yeah. She'll say to me, what is that? I can feel a rib. What is that? Like I have, and, and like, she's oh, like, she wants you bigger. Yes. That's and she's so like, funny. she's like, hi, but she, she liked hi, me. Hi, I'm Adam. I have the opposite relationship. <laughs> I literally, so when, when I get, I get, I haven't seen a rib and I go, damn it. Yeah. Dude, your voice is unbelievable. You know, what do people say? Can I say, when I hear yeah. your voice, I think... Um, what do you hear, Ross? I hear... Well, exactly. You just did it. I hear, like, late night um, <laughs> late night radio disc jockey. Yesterday, uh, the other day, uh, producer David and I were, were talking about doing fake radio promos. Because I love when I call into radio stations, and it's like Charlotte, North Carolina. And the promos for the radio stations themselves are always ridiculous. It's like, do you like a sports radio station that punches you in the face? <laughs> and like, I love that shit. What's really funny is, I don't think I've talked about it here, I hated my voice for a long time. I went to Syracuse. My teachers used to be on CBS Nightly News. You see posters of Mike Tirico's and yeah. Bob Costas, and all of their voices are perfect. And here I am with the voice of a 50-year-old divorcee, and I'm like, this is fucking awful. Say divorcee again. Divorcee. <laughs> so, but now, Dude, I love that. But now Your voice is awesome. Now it's become something I like. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, smoking daddy cigars and drinking all that bourbon accentuated it more. So it worked it, out. It, you have like an awesome voice. Thanks, that's like man. a big, that's a real positive. I'm working vote. on it now. Yeah. Oh, so now you like. Well, now now you have me thinking about it. So now I'm going to live in this No, but do you do, do you smoke cigars and drink like intense? Like there are people daddy that. Daddy cigars, Ross. Daddy cigars. Do, yeah, are there people. the same thing as a cigar. Got it, got it, got it. Are there people that. There, are, there used to be people that, like, smoke cigarettes. Yeah, like, be- under the table while they're doing the news. Right, oh, because... Oh, on purpose? No. No, on pur- No, they do it on purpose for their voice. You're, yeah. not, you're not doing it no. for your voice. No, no, no. It's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. At this point, though, my, my brother makes fun of me a lot because if I smoke a daddy cigar, I start sounding like Batman. Like, I'll just be sitting there and I'll be like... Why are we doing this? And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, I'm like there's, there's no reason for us to be here right now. And he's like, stop with the character acting. Um, you mentioned the Eagles before. Yeah. 
to me, I, I am family friends with Justin Pugh, who's now down the Arizona Cardinals. And yeah. I know that it bothered him for a while that here he was playing for the New York Giants, a first-round pick, yeah. and all of his friends are still wearing Eagles jerseys to those games. You played for Washington and Dallas. Yeah. And yet you were raised in a hardcore Eagles country. Yeah. And I always hear NFL players tell me as soon as you get drafted, the fandom washes away. I don't know if that's the case with you. Well, no, I'll tell you what happened. So what happens is when you're like a junior and senior in high school and then when you're a college football player, you kind of you don't lose your fandom, but you're so invested in what you're doing at that point that you're not as invested in the Eagles. Got, you're not really looking at the fandom, but you might be looking at a guard that's playing your position. Like you might be looking at John Welburn and looking at like what he does. Yeah, gotcha. like no, no, I was still like if you asked Jermaine me, Jermaine co- Mayberry, right? If you asked me in college, I was still and I love him. If you asked me in college, I was still an Eagles fan. Mm. But like on Sundays. We would have meetings the day after a game. Oh, I, wow. I didn't get a chance to watch that many Eagles games. I do remember this, though. It might, I think it was like my junior year of college. Uh, they had this thing where it's like it was, the Eagles played like a Thursday night game. Okay. And it was a bus, like, you know, some student-sponsored thing. It was a bus to go to the Eagles game. I was like, I'm in. It was free. You know, it, yeah, was like, yeah. it was like 10 bucks. So I'm in. I got one of my teammates to go with me. No, a couple, actually. One was from Philly, went to Cardinal O'Hara. The other one was sure. from Del Barton. We get on the bus. They get tickets to the game. Get on the bus. So we go. This is this might have been 2000, 99 or two thousand. So we get on the bus, and I'm just hammering da- daddy sodas. Yeah, yeah I'm just hammering daddy sodas the whole time. Right. We get there, and this is legitimately funny. We go down. I think they might have been playing the Rams. I go down during O line warmups. At this point, I'm feeling pretty good. Right. <laughs> I go down during O line warmups, and the O line is like doing their drills. And I am screaming. I think Steve Everett was their center. Nice. And I, I, I'm, I'm screaming at Trey Thomas. I'm going, nobody respects you, Trey. Nobody respects you. It's time to earn some respect. And Trey looks at me and points at me. And I keep saying it. He keeps going. Like, he, he's got me. Like, I'm like, that's nobody awesome. respects you. And the thing that's so funny about it is literally three years later, I'm starting for the Dallas Cowboys against the Eagles in a late season Saturday night ESPN game. And the thing that's weird about it, it wasn't weird really wearing a Redskins helmet or even like wearing a Cowboys helmet. Like like wearing a Cowboys helmet, it was cool. Like it was Cowboys. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, you know, I grew up with Emmett Smith and all those guys. I was blocking for Emmett Smith. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it is, it is. But what was weird? was playing against the Eagles. Mm, that was a little weird. Yeah, the only thing I ever felt was, well, first of all, during the game, during that day, I'm sitting in the hotel because it's a Saturday night game. One of my buddies calls me because my rookie year for the Redskins, I didn't play much. Okay. And then my second year for the Cowboys, um, I'm actually starting the game at wow. left guard. My buddy calls me and he's like, I still can't believe you're really going through with this, man. <laughs> I was like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, dude, the only thing I can figure is that you're going to let Corey Simon and Darwin Walker get a couple sacks to make sure we get home field advantage. That's amazing. I was like, Dom, you work at Verizon (laughs) in the mall. They don't even know you exist. There is no we. He's like, that's all all I can say. So what was weird about it, it was weird to be out there and like – you know, Trey Thomas is playing. Yeah. Or uh, Hugh Douglas 
and Dawkins, who oh. three years earlier, when I went to that Thursday night game, I was like, yeah, Hugh. I was like, let's go, Doc. Now I'm out there like trying to kill those guys. Yeah. Like I'm playing against them. So it was weird to go against the green. It was like um, I have an unhealthy obsession with Brian Dawkins. Oh, it's, he's, he's he's the best ever. He's most all beloved of my, eagle ever. He's all of my passwords. Uh, <laughs> he, he was my AIM screen name. I was saying this to Kyle last week, but to face him, I'm curious when you would when they would watch the film of him. Like, what was the the reverence that coaches and players like? Whether it's him or an Ed Reed, someone. Yeah. And I'm not just not, not just safeties, but like a Ray Lewis. When you guys were facing somebody special, what was that week of practice like hearing about that guy? Did they become mythological or would the coaches break them down and make you? Because I'm hearing Belichick, beginning of the week, he builds them up. End of the week, he breaks them down, the opponent. How would they handle like superstars, though, to guys like you? I think it varied. Some coaches would say, "Hey, you better you better bring your lunch pail this week." Like you're going against even like I remember starting a game against the Ravens. It was like Kelly Gregg, sure. who was a huge pain in the butt. He was like five eleven, two eighty, and uh, it was you could never get any leverage on him. Yeah, he was a fireplace. Yeah, exactly. He, he was a uh, yeah, exactly. So I but I remember, but sometimes they would try to downplay the guy like if they thought you like if they thought it depended on who they were talking to like if they thought you needed confidence they'd be like you got this he's older now yeah. you know he's overrated so you could kind of tell what they thought about you and your confidence based mm. on how they would describe it I do remember this though I gotta tell people all the time the best player I ever played against was Ray Lewis and it was 2004 I was starting at center for the Bills in Baltimore and I could just tell by the scheme that I was going to have to block him a lot. And to your point, the one practice squad offensive lineman was like, yo, Tuck, you got to block Ray like almost every play. And I said, you know, F him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to get – This is my time to make my statement to the rest of the league. I'm going to make a name for myself. Yeah. F him. I'm going to kill him. That is not what happened in the game. (laughs) (laughs) That is what I was hoping would happen. It's like pausing and it's like – that yeah, twenty minutes later. That yeah. was not what happened. I'm not even concerned. That's great. But here's the two things that you need to know. Everybody listening needs to know about Ray Lewis. First of all, more than any guy I ever played against, he called out what play we were running about fifty percent of the time. Based on our formation and motion. Simmons would say this too, that he would he would be at the line of scrimmage and Ray would go, they're running right up the gut to the left. And then Sims would go, Holy crap, this running back, and then he'd be like, Sorry, bro, because he just knew the play. <laughs> it was it film study? Was it just having like an intrinsic film study. sense? Film study. I, like there was a play that I was supposed to block and it was like a sweep to the right. I come off to the sideline, legendary O-line coach Jim McNally's like, Tuck, you gotta get Ray. I'm like, yeah, let me see the Polaroids. Because back then they had yes, they yes, would have yes. the Polaroid right before the snap, right after the snap. So he gives it, I give him and I show it to him. When I snap the ball, he was already he was the outside the tight end, <laughs> one yard off the ball. I give I go, you guys better call a different play or different formation. He looks and he goes, Oh shit. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Wow. And he did that half the time. And then Adam, even when I did get up to block him, okay. I'd go up to block him with the butt of his hands, the hard part of his hands. Yeah. Every time he would go, boop, hit me right. I don't have, I have short arms, my worst attribute. He would On hit me right, of the right in the shoulder points. He would lock me out, shed me, discard me, and then make the tackle to the point where best technique of any linebacker I ever went against. Yeah. I came back to the huddle and McGahee's like, 
Because McGee, he knows Ray Lewis. McGee's like, Tuck. Oh, Willis McGee. Yeah, Willis McGee. McGee's like, Tuck, may- maybe just try to cut him or something. <laughs> so finally, the next time we run the same sprint draw, I go like this to Ray, and I just dive at his knees. Yeah. I didn't get him down, but he had to protect his knee. Like, yeah, he had to, so you he had to slowed stop. him down. So McGee, he got like 15 yards. Nice. And that's what I just started doing. I Did could... Ray say anything to you after that? No. Okay. But I, I could not block him. Was I he could... a shit talker? Not in that game he wasn't. Mm. No. He didn't need to be. He was just killing me. So he, I, t- I tell that story all the time because when people think Ray Lewis or any walk of life, but Ray Lewis, they think big, fast, strong, yeah. ferocious. The two things that made him the best guy I ever went against, knowing what play was coming and his technique, they take no talent. Mm. Like that's just the time he put in that take week. Take no talent. Okay, did you hear what Brian Flores is doing in Miami? No. Apparently there's a huge wall near their practice field that says TNT, which means takes no talent. And anytime somebody fucks up at practice, they have to run and touch the wall and come back. So if the center and the quarterback have a failed exchange, he goes, That took no talent. Get to the wall. And so it's just discipline and all that. So just the fact you said I'm I love that. I'm obsessed with Brian Flores. Apparently he's just walking around going rents do every day like he is I, I was joking about w- what Patricia pretends to be where like he took all those lessons from Belichick and I'm not shitting on Patricia Brian Flores is like the 38 year old military version real enactment of it like I feel like he's Belichick's toy soldier and I'm so excited for what he's gonna do in Miami right you want to hear something crazy when I got signed by the Patriots in 05 Patricia was assistant offensive line coach it was midway through the year, so Patricia had to stay up with me all night because I had to be ready to play in that game. Mm. So Patricia, who everybody knows is a D coordinator, a Lions head coach, assistant offensive line coach, wow. with me all week, and Brian Flores was a scout. Wow. He wasn't even on the coaching staff. He was a scout. So I know both Do those guys. Do their rises make sense to you now? Yeah. Mm. Both very bright. Yeah. Patricia went to like RPI or yeah. RIT or something, and Flores went to BC. You could just tell. Now, they're very different in the sense that you know Patricia's got the beard and doesn't really care that much about that was my point is yeah. that when Brian Flores says don't like details matter and he's got like a six pack abs and like traps and works out at 4:30 in the morning you naturally believe that guy yes when Patricia says it I go you haven't shaved in two months <laughs> so like obviously the details are okay for some of us you know what I mean like just as a human I would react differently to that I I, I never you know looked at I mean? it that way but yeah, I think you have a better argument. Just like aesthetically. I, but Flores is the man. I think I, I think he's going to be successful, and I'll tell you why. I do too. They're doing it the right way. Yeah. Everything they're doing to build for 2020, the only move that they've made that I don't understand is the Fitzpatrick move. Right. Like, if you're trying to lose, don't bring in Fitz. I don't know, because to me, if you're trying to lose, Fitzpatrick is the perfect guy to cover it up. If you're up 14 nothing, there's no quarterback for the, to have that evaporate in the second half with five quick picks. But and it doesn't yeah, look but he's going to win three or four games for you. Yeah, I know. He's going he's gonna to win three or four. Like, you don't want that. I, I don't know if he's the perfect tanking quarterback or the worst tanking quarterback. Because like, if you're really a team that could win one, he might win you four. But if you're a team that might win six, he might win you three. I was doing that on my show today. I was doing... Uh, favorite journeyman quarterback of all time. Oh, with Josh with McCown, Josh McCown retiring. Yeah. It's some of the names that people bring up, you're like like JT O'Sullivan and like the, without like having any prep, Sean Hill is one of my favorites. Yes. Uh John Kitna. Yes. I'm just thinking all Detroit Lions right now. Dave Craig. I saw I was watching an old documentary about Jay Z and 
all these rappers going on tour, and one of the rappers was wearing a Bobby Hoying jersey. And I was like, <laughs> I would say Bubby Brister is yes. up there, one that I really like. Um, Tommy Maddox is, I think, the journeyman quarterback. Yeah, well, because you he could does other the, leagues and but stuff. All, but, but the journey, like, Tommy Maddox and then Kurt Warner, now that he's a Hall of Fame, I wouldn't put him as that. But Tommy Maddox being kicked out of the league and having to use the XFL to come back in the league yeah. and playing in a playoff game. We're talking about journeymen. I mean, that's a fucking Here's a journey. question. Would you consider, like, Mark Brunel or Jeff Garcia journeymen or... Did they have too much success with the Jags and Niners? I would to say Brunel is not a journeyman because I believe he was the face of the Jaguars. Yes, but I look at Jeff Garcia and the amount of disrespect he got and how many teams he played on. I would say he was, even though he had a few years where like his quarterback uh, rating was like the highest of all time with the Niners. Yeah, that Niners team never felt like like with like To. It never felt not like his th- team. Right. I think if it, if it was ever your team. I don't consider you a journeyman. Yeah. You like, like Brunel, it was his team. Yeah. McCown never had a team. Never. Like Brian Hoyer is a journeyman. The thing about you know? McCown, I remember interviewing Emmett Smith. Everybody has respect for McCown. Like even Emmett Smith was like his rookie year, it was like my last year. Like so McCown's like journey into the NFL was my like swan song. Yeah. And he's like, and I fucking love Josh McCown. And I love Emmett. I tell people all the time. So it was weird. So I'm in the huddle with Emmett, right? And it's so funny because NFL Films just sent me my career highlights, which they do now. And I was like laughing about how long it would actually be. How long is it? It was like nine minutes. That's incredible. They got a good nine minutes out of it. Yeah. Um, And it's awesome because I showed my daughters. They had never seen it. And a lot of it is Emmett scoring a touchdown and then me running in and hugging him. Yeah, yeah. And my daughters are like, Daddy, why do you hug so much? I'm like, well, because <laughs> I'm happy. And that's the all-time leading rusher in NFL history. But I tell people all the time about Emmett that's so funny is – so first of all, he'd been playing since I was like 10, right? But he was small and he was slow. But somehow he always got yards. What do you we, think it was? We had the worst offensive line in the league. He was really small. He's so slow. Yeah. And somehow any little nook or crevice or cranny yeah. and he could follow blocking. It's so interesting you say that because I think Emmett is defined by the offensive lines of the early 90s. The Larry Allen lines and all that where we discredited him because the line was so good. Exactly. But as he played longer that didn't stand the test of time. I'll tell people that say that. Watch 2002 because we stunk. Our quarterback's <laughs> a friend of mine. I was in his wedding, Chad Hutchinson, but Chad we Hutchinson. we did not have a great passing game. Jason Garrett, Princeton the, guy, journeyman. Yes, the O line, journeyman. Yeah, the O line was not good, and yet Emmett. I remember on Thanksgiving we beat the Redskins. He had like 150 yards. Like he he. Now we were the first team in like 11 years. He didn't get a thousand yards. He had like 960. Damn, that was so we we, we left. Yeah, it was bad because the last game that was like all we were trying to do. Yeah, was get him a thousand yards because like the season was over. You were, I'm sure for him it was vision. When you talk about Ray, you talk about guys like Zach Thomas, talk about guys like Junior Seau, that ability to read. And I hear that you actually laid a smack on Junior Seau one time. Yeah, who told you that one? Man, don't worry about it. I, dude, you you are well researched. So, one of my favorite plays ever. I'm playing, uh, it's 2003. I'm right guard for the Bills. I pull right on like a sweep to the right, right? Kind of, they call it a G scheme, right? So the guard Before pulls Before you finish the, right. the story, can I ask you a question? Yeah. When you come around to the right, what is the best situation that you could see? And what's the worst situation that you could see? Because I know that for a second, you're kind of blind, 
right? Yeah. You're kind of turning that corner. Yeah. So what's the best thing you can see and the worst thing that you can see? Um, so it's weird because they're the exact same thing. What? The best thing you can see is nothing because it's like, wow, it's really well blocked and I can go up on the next level. Right. But that's also the worst thing because that probably means that the linebacker is coming to blow up your freaking hip as hard as he can. Mm. And you, you're pulling around the tight end of the tackle. You can't see him, but he sees you. Right. And he knows exactly what you're doing. And what people don't realize is, like you'll see on TV, like a 320-pound guy go flying. You have no power in your back hip. Like when you pull and run, there's no power if someone hits you. So that hits, you just collapse. Yeah, you go flying. There's no power in your back hip. So those guys are taught when a lineman gets out there on a screen or a lineman pulls, they're taught to back hip you because there's no power there. Wow. And so if there's nothing there, you're looking inside because you're like, I'm about to get killed. So anyway, so I'm there. And say I was one, he knew what was coming before the play, right? So I have to block him. He starts to slide out before the play. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I snap, and he hits me. He jacks me up like four yards in the backfield because he knew what was coming. He went on the end of the line of scrimmage, came screaming off. So I hit him. We engage. Uh, Travis Henry was a running back. Travis stops, runs in the opposite direction, okay, so runs away from us where the play is supposed to go. So I'm, I'm locked up with you, your junior, and junior sees that, T. Hen's going that way. So he disengages from me and starts to go that way back towards the center, towards Travis Henry. I have no idea what possessed me to do this. But any other thing I would have done would have been a holding penalty, right? And and you had one harm. Yeah. And, and it would have been blatantly obvious yeah. to the refs, right? Like blatantly obvious. So for some reason, my gut reaction was to take my right hand, an open hand, and hit him in the back of the head <laughs> as hard as I possibly could. Okay, like my—I guess my thought was the momentum. I didn't think anything; it was just a reaction. But it worked because he was using all his force to disengage and go that way. Right. So then, when you hit him in the head that way, he—he he went like this. He looked like he got shot by a sniper and went and 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 fell down to the ground. And he gets up and gets in my face and goes, Tucker, what the fuck was that? That was bullshit. What the fuck was that? And I'm just smiling, laughing. He's like, what's so fucking funny? I'm like, dude, you're going to the Hall of Fame someday. I just totally smoked you. That was hilarious. That I just was... deacon Joan the crap out of the back <laughs> yeah, of your head. Yeah, like, is, that go... a, is that illegal? Like, can you? Do no, that? you can't do that. You no. can't hit a guy in the head with an open hand like no, that. No. But they didn't see it. Yeah, it's like Things it. happen so fast that they can't. Did that make the nine-minute highlight reel? Uh, no, Dang. I wish it had. You know what's funny though? The the, the highlight reel they send you um, comes with no audio. So I had a buddy of mine put some songs to. It. He's like, "What songs do you want?" I'm like, "I don't know, dude." So I had no. I, well, I had him put a couple uh, "Glory Days" by Springsteen, a couple "Imagine Dragons." Nice. I don't know if he could have found like the NFL films music, but then I was showing it to my mom and her boyfriend, and I was like telling them what to watch for, and they're like. This is what the audio needs to be. You know, for posterity, uh, it needs to be you. Because I'm like, I'm like, watch this. At the end of this play, Gerard Warren tells me he's going to break my arm. Because literally, it was a play in 2004 against the Browns. I'm blocking Gerard Warren, who, by the way, spit in my face earlier in the game. Spit, like, a lot. Did you say anything to Warren it? What's that? Did you earn that spit? No. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, in training camp, we had had... 
practices with them. Yeah. And I did them dirty a couple times. What so, does that mean? Like some under uppercuts? Uh, one you time. A, were you a training camp fighter? For sure. Yeah, for sure. So one time, so one time he went down, and, and so you know how these teams all have these training camp practices together. Yeah. Buffalo did it with Cleveland, and one time, like. He came on a stunt and tripped and went to the ground, and I, like, speared him while he was on the ground. You guys love doing that shit. I love it. And then in one-on-ones, Sam Weish told me I was his hero when he saw that on tape. What? And then then we're doing one-on-ones, and I know he's all pissed at me now, right? So I know he's going to come off firing low and try to kill me because he's so mad at what I I just did in that other drill, right? So as soon as the snap comes, rather than trying to bull, like, you know, engage with him, I just lift up. And take my two fists and thunderstrike the back of his pads. Because he came off that low. Wow. But I just went, whap! And he went face first, right? And everybody's laughing at him. Yeah. I mean, it was glorious. And this was one on one, so it's in front of everybody. Right. And this is one on ones during practice, right? So he can't get me, he can't get back at me. Well, we play him like week 11, week 12. And he was waiting. For, so, so, first play of the game, uh, after the play, he, he had a mouthful of water. That he must have done on purpose, spits all the water in my he face. He played the first play with water in his mouth. Yeah, he must this have. Awesome. There's no way anybody has that much spit. It was like a lot. Like it was like a lot of water. He's like <laughs> second play, um second play, Alvin McKinley did Wait, something. How did you react to getting spit in your face? I was like, what the hell was that? And I went back in the huddle. Here's the thing though. Like then the next series they came out. And they did the same thing. Like they didn't spit at me, but like they were pushing me after the play. So their coaches clearly had showed them the video yeah, of what of I course. did from practice. So then there's a TV timeout, and I'm not even kidding you, Adam. Ask any guy in the Buffalo Bills during the TV timeout. I walked over to the Browns defensive line, and I said, "Hey guys, I'm sick of it now. I'm breaking one of your fucking legs on the next play." And I walked back to the huddle. God, I was just sick of it. I go, uh, during a TV timeout, I walked over, I'm breaking one of your fucking legs on the next play. And I walked back, and and we came out for that next play, and Alvin McKinley is like, talk, talk, we're, we're cool, man, we're cool, it's good. Because, you know, as an offensive lineman, you can. You like, just, oh, there's man. five offensive linemen, there's four D linemen, you can get guys in a position, like, if I I can get you in a position where I can put a lot of force on the side of your and leg if I want to. And they're being blocked by somebody else, and you hit them from the side. Yes, and... I can break your leg if I want to. And so... Damn, that's wild to even think like And so that. they were like, they were like, they were like, it's cool, man, we're cool, it's over now, it's over now. Well, then later in that game, I'm going, I'm blocking Gerard Warren, he, he had... Uh, a couple screws loose. I'm blocking him, and I'm getting a good block on him. We run in for a touchdown. Now, you can see on the video, when he's like at the three-yard line and the running back's like the five, he stops trying to get off the block and goes like this and takes my arm and puts me in an arm bar like this. Gerard Moore puts me in an arm bar like this and says, um, break your motherfucking arm. I was like, Jar, no, 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 Jar. Like, I thought he was going to do it. He's like, I'm like, no, 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 it's cool, Jar. It's a plays over, plays over. And he didn't do it. But i never been in an arm, befo- arm bar before with a 6'3, 330 pound. He was enormous. M- monster. So yes. quick. And he and he said, just like, a, oh, break your motherfucker all. I, I was scared shitless, dude. I was so scared. I thought you were going to say after he spit in your face that you stood there the entire TV timeout and were like, but <laughs> <laughs> that old Ace Ventura thing, and like you just, my my dream is that Gerard Warren spent those eleven weeks with a picture of you on the wall doing target practice <laughs> and just spitting at it. You know what's funny this now is, is my like, moment, Ross. You know what's funny now? A thousand percent, somebody would have video of that. 
a thousand percent the yes. guy would say something about it after the game. Yeah. And it would become like a huge social huge media. Thing. It's happened thing. many times. I got spit on twice. Langston Moore from the Bengals spit in my face later that season. I never say anything to anybody about either one That's of them. That's why in that era, when it was caught on tape, it was such a big deal. When Bill Romanowski spit in that guy's face, what was it, JJ Stokes? JJ Stokes. That was enormous. When I actually got a chance one time to spend an afternoon with Buddy Ryan when he was like ve- like very older. Okay. His granddaughter, or pretty much granddaughter, is one of my best friends in Kentucky. And she hooked it up to where I got to spend the whole day with him. And we were talking about that occurrence on the sideline when he went to go punch Gilbride. Kevin Gilbride in the head. And I, I, said, I said, the fact that the camera was on you guys... I go, how many coaches in that time probably fought each other on the sideline? There was probably a lot. I don't know how many went for yeah. a full punch to the face. Yeah. But the fact that the cameras were there, I mean, that's why it, it lives in infamy. Yeah. Now we're like overrun with all these clips right. and, and sideline shots and handheld camera phones and all that right, stuff. Right, right. It's totally, totally changed. But I never said, like, I didn't say anything. Like, I, how do you, I guess... How do you even bring that up after the game? Like I, I wasn't gonna be like, oh yeah, that one dude spit on me. Like we won, they lost. I, yeah, I, I just that moved was on. It. That was. I it. do remember though after Langston Moore in Cincinnati, spit on me. Marvin Lewis was their head coach, and I had played with Marvin with the Redskins in '02, and I was screaming at Marvin to let him back in the game, because the ref saw it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. didn't throw a flight. The ref just like told him to get off the field or something, and I'm, I'm like, bring him back out here. Bring him back out here. And that that game, that's another. I got to tell a quick story yeah. about that game. So we're up. You know Justin Smith, of course. Yeah. So we're up like in that game. I want to say. Oh, by the way, that was the game, Adam. Two thousand four at Cincinnati, maybe like week fifteen. That was the game where number eighty five for the Buffalo Bills, Jason Peters, blocked the punt, picked up and returned it for a touchdown. 85. Number 85 for the 2004 Buffalo Bills. I've heard you Jason wax poetic Peters. about Jason Peters recently. Unbelievable. So why, anyway, so why, me, why is it why is it resonating with you so much right now? I heard you on Dave Damashek's podcast just talking about him still being able to play at this level. Like, what is it about him that's speaking to you right now? Dude, he's like 38 years old. We played together in 2004. It hurts my back, and I weigh like 255 now to stand at a bar. For my third beer. Like, if it's like 25, 30 minutes, I'm like, oh, I gotta sit down. This guy is still 350. And I went to Eagles minicamp last week or whenever that was. He moves around like a gazelle. Mm. I mean, he's like flying around the field. It's unbelievable. I get the vibe from him when he got hurt a year or two ago and got carted off the field. And you saw the impact that he has on his teammates and the way they speak about him. Was he always like a super leader? Not at all. Really? If you would have told me that he'd become what he's become, I would have been shocked. Really? First of all, they cut him at first cuts, the Bills did. Wow. But he was still in the hotel. I was like, why are you still here? He's like, oh, they're bringing me back on practice squad. But back then, the first cut went down to 65, and they needed other dudes to get through the last preseason game. So they cut him at the first cuts. Jason Peters was cut at the first cut. To 65, from 80 to 65, Jason Peters was cut, hanging out in the hotel because they were bringing him back on practice squad as a tight end. It's unbelievable. And then I remember end. when they moved him. I, I was the day they moved him to offensive line. Okay, he was playing tight end. They had him come down to do one on ones, and I was never very good at one on ones. You know, it's a very difficult drill for an offensive Except lineman. Except for that one time against Gerard Warren. Against Gerard Warren, yeah. yeah. But it, it, it's a very difficult drill for an offensive lineman. Jason came down. They put him at left tackle. Nobody could beat him. Dude, he was better 
in five seconds than I was. He was better at doing something in five, than I had been for 18 years. Wow. It was un, He had no idea what he was doing. His technique was all over the place. They just said, stay in front of that guy. Yes. His feet were that good. Wow. His arms were that long. And I'm talking like Aaron Schobel. Like, they put like some legit rush. And like, show if they were like, let me, I got it. Let me go. Nope. Wow. They couldn't get anywhere. But. So what happens? You guys are just looking at each other being like, well, what the fuck? Like, like, yeah, like, like the coaches are like, this is amazing. The offensive linemen are like, I mean, shit. I exactly. I was like, I think you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Like, this is not right. That's awesome. And and what's crazy is I remember he had like a souped up Impala. I remember that. Um, I remember that he had, he had a souped up Impala. And I also remember um, he, the, the playbook did not come naturally to him. Mm. So even his second year. After all the OTAs, after all the mini camp, after all training camp, he was not the back. He didn't. Not only did he not start, they didn't trust him enough to be the backup tackle. Wow. He was the number four tackle because those guys don't even suit up half the time. He didn't suit up because what would happen is if the if the corner blitzed off the edge or he he just the, the, he the, would forget like the, the priority assignments. The blitz responsibilities yeah. did not come. Really naturally for him, so which is why like, I was so high on this Milata kid. You know, for people who don't know, the Eagles have a Australian rugby dude who's like six nine, three seventy, moves great. He never played football before. Yeah. Jason at least been playing football forever. I'm watching Jordan Milata last year, looking awesome and looking like he knows what he's doing. Yeah, like he was better. Jordan Milata was better last year in those preseason games as a rookie, 21 year old, than Jason was his second year. Mm. So that's why I said, I said, I got a lot of attention. I said, I don't think this guy's gonna be a starter anymore. I think he's gonna be like an all pro. Like he's that, he's that's that why drafting Andre Dillard's interesting for the Eagles. Yeah, I, well, two thoughts. One is, you know, Mylotta went on IR with a back injury. Oh, at, that's true. Last year. Yeah. Last year. So as a guy that had a back surgery in Buffalo, I was never the same. Yeah, when I hear back, I just go, they'll never be the same again. I've never heard a guy say, I used to have a bad back. Yeah. You still always have a bad back in some way, shape, or form. Like, talk about Tiger Woods. That's all I ever hear. Yeah, so I don't know. Like, maybe my lot is totally fine. He's practicing everything, but... That might have been a concern. And also, there's still some unknown about Mylotta. Right. Whereas I think my guess is the Eagles felt like it's just too important of a position. And I would say when to you leave watch the that chance. team lose Jason Peters and you see trying to get Vitae out there, yes. and especially with Brandon Brooks, Brooks coming off an Achilles, all the shuffling that might need to yes. happen. And you don't really get a franchise left tackle at 22 in the draft every year. Correct. It kind of worked out in their favor. They ju- and, and I think their thought is if Mylotta ends up being unbelievable, then great. Maybe we can trade him or trade Dillard, or maybe we'll just have three awesome tackles. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, the Eagles have a history, whether it's Runyon and Trey Thomas or whatever, they want to be good at tackles. Yes, they, they do. They, that is very, very important to them. Um, I just realized, too, you're doing the preseason games for the Eagles this year. Yeah, it's Everyone's awesome. talking about the impact of Mayock going to the Raiders. You're like, holy crap, this opens up. Yeah. I got a chance right <laughs> it was a- So what's weird is I did the NFL games for Westwood One every Sunday for like seven years. Westwood One Radio, a national game. This past year was the first year Westwood One decided not to do Sunday afternoon games. Mm. So instead, I did Eagles pregame for WIP Radio, which is the station of yep. Philly. If you're from there, you know. A lot of people listening won't know, but it's the station. So I did Eagles pregame. So part of that is 
you know, with the Eagles and whatever. So I'm doing their pregame for their Saints playoff game. And I'm sidelined for Western 1. So it was awesome. I call it the vaunted double dip. It's because I get paid to do Eagles pregame and then sideline for Western 1. So I get yeah. checks from both. So that week, Mayock takes the Raiders GM job out of nowhere. And so literally, I'm on the um, elliptical at the hotel, and Howie Roseman comes on the elliptical right next to me. Yes. And, and, we're, and, I, and, I, and you know, he's got a big game that day. You know what I mean? And he knows me. We're not like friends, but he knows me. I said, hey, Howie. I just want to let you know, like, I would love that that preseason oh, you, gig. You shot, you shot your shot right yeah, there. Yeah, I, I would love that preseason gig. Um, you know, it, it would be a dream job for me. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, God, he's like, he's like, that's not my department. He's like, but if they ask me, you know, you know, I, you know, I think yeah. you do a great job, basically. And then I told the guy that's in charge at the game, I said, look, I know this is the last thing you're thinking about right now, but I just want, I just want to say while I'm in person, like. I've been watching those games since I was six years old. Sure. I can remember being at the Jersey Shore, and they would want to go to Springer's for ice cream. I'd be like, nope. It's the third quarter against the Jets, preseason game number four. I am watching this. You know what yes. I mean? Like, I was that guy. Quentin Caver might get on the field today. <laughs> so anyway, so I so That's I just, awesome, I just told him it was a dream job. And so with Mike leaving, uh, you know, and I uh, since I had worked for them that year, yeah. ended up working out. So it's cool. Like, you know how, how you know, Hastings, Nebraska. Hastings? Uh-huh. You know. No, it's a tough business. Yeah. So when things work out such that somebody gets a dream gig, it's really cool. And it's not like I'm doing Monday Night Football. It's not like it's a whole season. But for those four games, that's like, it sounds weird to say, but like on some level, it's a bigger deal for me than Monday mm. Night Football. It's the Eagles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's the Eagles. And it's kind of cool too because Reading is an hour west of Philly and it's kind of a rough city. It's kind of falling on tough times. So it's really cool for people in Reading to see one of their guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody from Reading yeah. is on the Eagles broadcast. Not Philly. Are you going to get an article in like, the local paper? Oh, a thousand percent. I think they already did. That's awesome. A thousand percent. <laughs> thousand percent. I think I already did. Um, did you, when you played on the Patriots, did you snap to Brady? Yeah. In practice. Never in a game. All right, so all I've ever heard is that that exchange is where practice starts and stops. That if that's not perfect, that's all they're going to focus on. That they can't start until the snap's great. And that if it's not going well, that's when Belichick's going to come out and go, you know, there's a kid at the local high school that could do this better than you. He either says that or he says, you know, I remember he said one time, he said, you know, I sucked. Okay, I really did. I suck. I was not but good. But he was a snapper, right? He was a yes. long snapper. He's like, he's like, he's like, I sucked. He's like, you know what I could do? I could snap the ball to the quarterback. The story I tell people that I think is crazy, and it kind of goes back to the Ray Lewis thing a little bit, is I played football for 18 years, and snapping the ball to a quarterback, you take the ball, you propel it to your rear, and you're hitting the quarterback's top hand, right? It's the most mundane, rote thing you do. It's the first thing you do every practice. It's so boring. It's so stupid, right? And you hate it. You're like, what a waste of time. Yeah. Never had a quarterback that cared nearly as much about it as Brady. When when I'm at practice, and I was in the huddle, like in the spring, he would come in the huddle, and they have him do everything there. I'm sure Chris has told you, but like change the protections and blah, blah, blah. He comes in the huddle, and he says, all right, Ross, great snap. You and me, great snap first. In my eyes, like that. He would say that every time? Every time. 
you and me, great snap first, Ross. Then he would call the play. And at the time, Adam, I'm 26, maybe 27. I had played five years in the NFL. I started 25 games, played in 45. Like, played with I'm, a ton of different I'm a vet. I'm a vet, yeah. right? When he would look at me and say that, in my head, I was like, okay, Tom, okay, it'll be the really? best. Like, just the way he would look at me and say it. And the story I tell people is like, you know, it makes a sound when you hit when you snap the ball when you hit the hand, the quarterback's top hand, right? It's and I, I equate it to a clap, right? So if I make this clap, like that's a decent noise, right? But if you really get a good clap, you really can hear it. Like it's there's a better noise, gotcha. or if it's if, if it's a perfect if a perfect clap is like a perfect snap, it's like. Like, you really just hear it. It just, yes. it just pops. So, it's like when you dap up your friend and you hit it right and you look at each yes! other. Yes. Like, that was it. Yes. Yeah, gotcha. So, Brady wanted that every freaking time. Mm. Every time. And his psych- I love the fact that Brady would like probably go to like David Givens and they'd like high five and he'd be like, do it again. <laughs> I want perfect high fives. He's just demanding on all In that. his head, though, in his psycho head, I mean it as a compliment, that perfect snap, okay, like that perfect noise lets him go back from center a little bit faster and then lets him see the defense a little bit quicker. He's not readjusting the ball. He's not, not trying readjust- to find the laces. And it lets him get the ball out a little bit quicker. To the right. Like, mm. in his mind, okay, like, I'll talk to college or high school football teams, and by the time you're like a senior and you've been doing the same drills for three years, you're like, I, you know, whatever. I know how to do this drill. It's like the kick slide drill or yes. whatever. You're like, this is just stupid. Like, I let's get to the game. It's like already. an NBA player doing layup lines. Yeah. Guess yeah. what? Guess what? Brady doesn't look at it that way. There's like, I tell people, you, how can you say any drill is stupid when Tom freaking Brady cares that much about the quarterback center snap? Mm. When it's that important to him, in his mind, every second he's out there is a chance to get a little bit better. And everything he does, it's like, why are you trying to do it unless you're trying to do it perfectly every time? It's unbelievable. So you seem like somebody that can be self-aware and that can also evaluate like people's psychology. Was there ever a time where you looked at Brady and you were like, you're fucking crazy? Like, did you ever ask him why he's so crazy? No, but we would like, I'll give you an example of him being crazy. I'll give you a couple of examples. Agility drills in the off season, like the ladder drill, you know? He was not good at that. Like, he, he's not athletic, yeah. right? To the point where at times I remember people, like, laughing. Like, you know, we'd all go through the drills. You'd see, like, some of these DBs and wide receivers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. And then Brady would go, and we'd all kind of laugh. Left, right, left, right. Yeah, left, and, he, right. and he'd, be, he'd be like, I'm doing it again. The guy had already won three Super Bowls. Like, nobody cared. He's like, I'm doing it again. Like, because he thought, I can do the agility drill a little bit better. I'll give you another one. This is this is this might even be better than the snap one. They signed me midway through the 05 season. One of those weeks we had the rookie dinner. So I go out and the guys are asking me what it was like in Buffalo, because I played three years in Buffalo. And I'm like, it was awesome. I love those guys. We would all get like a keg of Labatt Blue and go to Bledsoe's house. It was great. <laughs> Bledsoe always paid the tab. It was awesome, yeah. right? So they're like, and I'm saying, like, we love Bledsoe because he paid for everything. And Brady's like four people down, but I can tell that, and I to this day I think he was kind of listening, right? You could feel. I could feel that he like he was 
looking at the people in front of him, but I'm pretty confident he was listening. And somebody like Steve Neal or somebody goes, oh, yeah? Well, because I was telling him, I was telling him how awesome Bled to is because he always pays the tab. And, and Steve Neal said something like, oh, yeah, Tom just gets us rings. Damn. Which was pretty awesome, yeah, right? great comment. But then the next year during training camp, okay, we go to a barbecue joint. This is when the famous chugging story was. I'm not even telling you about the famous chugging story, although your 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 rankings are, while flawed, hilarious. Good. Um, so we're at a barbecue <laughs> joint, and this is before or after. No, this is after the chugging contest, and we're about to go to Talladega Nights opening night. Okay, it was the opening night, and Matt Light had called ahead. I'll tell you that story in a second. So I go to pay for my barbecue, like thirteen dollars. All right, I go up to the register. Brady comes flying over, flying over, and he's like, he's like, Ross, I got it, I got it. I'm like, Tom, it's thirteen dollars, dude. Like, I got it. He looked at me, like he was gonna kick my ass. He's like, No, I'm paying. I got it. You will never convince me. That it wasn't somewhere in his head that he heard me a year before I, in December or November talking about how Bledsoe would pay for everything. You you can and I don't know any of this for a fact, but you could never convince me otherwise that he didn't remember Bledsoe would pay for everything, and there was no way he was going to let me pay for that. And then, dude, so we go to Talladega Nights, okay? Did you appreciate that? Yeah. I, the guy is just awesome. Like you think about like the Aaron Rodgers, where he's like, you know, these guys are irrelevant. Like Greg Jennings and Jermichael Finley, whatever. Yeah. I've never found a single person that actually knows Brady to say anything negative about him. Mm. Think about that. Yeah, the only thing I've heard is that he's a little corny, but like that's not that bad. Yeah, I can. I mean, I didn't notice that. I, the only knock I gave him was he would blow dry his hair. And I was like, come on, dude. But then I thought, he makes so much money from his yeah. appearance. I'd be blow-drying my pew. Like, I'd be dry- blow-drying <laughs> everything. If I was getting money from that, I'd be blow-drying everything. Yeah. That was the only knock against him. So anyway, so that night, you'll appreciate this because you like movies and you're a uh, comedy guy. So we go to Talladega Nights. The movie starts at 9. It's opening night. Will Ferrell, Talladega Nights. Oh, we- I thought you guys were going to the race. I didn't realize you were going to the movies. No, okay. the movies. Okay. It was during training camp. Belichick gave us the night off because Harry Carson was getting in the Hall of Fame. Oh, so we had to get down there. Yeah. So, so if you're not first, you're last. We get there at 9.25 for a 9 o'clock showing. But Matt Light had called ahead and told him we were coming and told him Brady was coming. So they had the three best rows of the theater marked off for us. But the computer system must have kept printing out tickets. So th- I'm not even kidding. There are people when we get there, like standing on the outsides of the theater, yet there's three rows, middle in the back, reserved for us. And we just walk in. I mean, dude, they had won three Super Bowls in four years. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. We just walked in, and yeah, they didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so we sat down. Nobody sat on either side of me. Meanwhile, there were like people standing. Wow. But they had reserved those rows. So I'm right behind Brady, and he's got a hat pulled down. He's sitting next to Matt Castle in front of me. He got a hat pulled down like this. And by the time we got there, it was really, you know, the movie was dark. So they couldn't really see who was coming in. The people are in front of Brady, and they're, they turn around, and you're Tom Brady. And they're oh, like, hold on, let me, okay. Yeah, you're Tom Brady. And they're like this. I think it's Brady. Like, it was that dark that you couldn't really tell. They're like four feet away from him. 
I think it's Brady. And the, and the guy next to him's like, no. He's like, no, I think it's Brady. <laughs> and the and movie's going on. The movie just starts. Oh, yeah. And Brady doesn't say a word. So they didn't know. You know, yeah. Brady didn't say anything. And then the movie starts. And then they had um, security for us when we were leaving. Yeah. But it's like funny. Like, there's no chance he, like, goes to a movie now. That, that I think I got there right at the end of him being able to be somewhat normal. Mm. And like he he can't do stuff like that. Now. No. He probably gets the movie sent to his house and he watches them there. Yeah. I saw you say somewhere that Belichick is very serious but also funny, and I'm curious what's the funniest thing you've ever heard him say. Um So, and also what's the thing he said to you that maybe hurt your feelings? Well, he he only talked to me four times. Awesome. The whole time I was there, four times, and it's and that's a good thing because that's a book. it's called Four Conversations with Belichick, <laughs> and you turn each conversation to a life lesson. There you go. It's not bad. He, um, it's a hundred percent. I'm sure Chris has told you this. It's a hundred percent negative reinforcement there. So like, your whole goal is to not be on the eight a.m. low light video. So at eight a.m. team meeting. He'll first of all tell you every question the media is going to ask you that day. And is he right? And what your answer is. Yes. You know how he does it? I've seen him. He will, like on a Wednesday morning, with the first day of the work week, he'll be on the treadmill with a yellow highlighter for like an hour. He goes through every clip about the team. Everything. Wow. He reads it. Yellow highlighter, highlight stuff. So he can tell by the Wednesday columns and the Wednesday stories, what the reporters think the storyline is. So when he comes to the meeting, he says, they're going to ask you about the weather. We're playing the Jaguars in the playoffs, right? Uh, 2005 wild card round. They're going to ask you about the weather. Weather's no factor. Weather's the same for both teams. Like he literally went right down the line. And then you get out there for the media and it would be that stuff. Exact questions. I've always wanted to go to a Belichick press conference and ask him random questions about nothing. Yes. Like, I just want to be like, what do you think is the most... I, I know if I said, what do you think is the most overrated movie of all time, he'd, like, turn and look away. Yeah. But I love when people ask him historical questions or, like, football-centric questions. Because the stuff about this week, it's never going to get answered. No. I didn't realize that he prepared like that, though. Never played with a team organization that cared as much about the media as the Patriots. And I remember thinking, is this really That's this so important? Because they act like the media doesn't matter, but yet they're really controlling it. That's oh, they care a if lot. If Belichick came on your podcast, what would you talk to him about? Because uh, that would be a lot of fucking pressure. First of all, I don't think he would. No, and no, no. Second no. Of he all, definitely wouldn't. Right. But if for some reason he said, I enjoyed coaching you, Ross, I'm going to do 20 minutes. No, you know what? I, I would only ask him about, like back in the day or X's and O's stuff. I would ask him stuff like anything because that's the only good stuff you're going to get from him. Yeah. But he, what do you, he had no, so, so you I'll were, tell you, you were talking about the four conversations yeah, I'll tell you the, the eight o'clock lowlights. I'll tell you the four things. So anyway, your whole goal is to not be on that low light video, but I'll tell you the four conversation we had the day they signed me. I'm, uh, Scott Pioli signs me. I go in the team meeting room. I'm sitting there and Belichick walks up like 14 stairs to come shake my hand. I'm sitting there, and I see him coming, and I start uh, I start to get up, and he says, stay in your chair, stay in your chair, and he shake my hand. I'm like, okay, and then he walks, and he goes back, uh, and that was the same day that uh, Brady said, I'm snapping at Brady, and Brady goes, he does this to everybody. He goes, hi, Ross, I'm Tom. I was like, hi, Tom. Nice to meet you. And I'll never forget that day, by the way. That night, my sister called me. And she's like, 
did you meet Tom Brady? I said, yeah, Brent, I'm kind of on the team. Like, I was snapping on the ball. She said, wait, 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 you were what? I was snapping on the ball. She said, does that mean his hands were, I said, yeah. She said, I've never wanted to switch places with you so bad in my whole life. <laughs> That's awesome. So so anyway, so that was the first Wait, the thing. The first said, conversation is is him saying, "Stay in your chair, stay in your chair." Yeah, stay in your chair, stay okay, in your chair. Okay, so that's conversation. You don't need to get, no, he goes, "You don't need to get up." Okay. Second thing was that practice at that week. Um, for some reason, I fell on the ground, and that's a cardinal sin because I, you fall on the ground, injuries. You happen. can hurt people. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So he had this he had this unbelievable way of walking by you, never stopping, and all I heard was. From some corner in my ear, stay off the fucking ground, will you? And I look around, and I don't even know like who said it or what. And all of a sudden, I look over, and Belichick's like eight paces that way already. So he saw me fall down, stay off the fucking ground, will you? And I see him walk that way. I was like, oh, that must have been him. Okay. Conversation number two. That was conversation number two. Conversation number th- I'm going to say that you've used the word conversation a little liberally here, yeah. but I see what we're doing. Yes. The only comments he ever said to me. Gotcha. Uh, comment number three... I like conversation, though. Yeah. Conversation number three, <laughs> we're playing the Jaguars in that playoff game that week. And my college teammate, Dennis Norman, at Princeton, was starting at center for the Jaguars that week. Um, and Belichick, like, again, I hear this noise out of nowhere. It comes from behind. And I, I, I just hear somebody say, we got half the fucking Princeton, football, Princeton line in this game. And I'm looking around. And he's over there, and it was Belichick again. Mm. And I wanted to tell him something about Dennis, but they never, they never asked me. And he walked away. And then the only real conversation I ever had was when they traded me. Mm. I was there. It was 06. I re-signed. We're in practice. I'm supposed to go in for the two-minute drill. And Skarnekia, who's the best O-line coach yeah. ever, I think, he's like, uh, he, he put somebody else in, like Russ Hochstein. Uh, he put him in at center instead of me. And I'm like, oh, that's not a good sign. It was my day to be center during the two-minute drill. I'm like, that's not a good sign. So after practice, we get there, and I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe he pulled me out of that drill. Like, am I on thin ice already? Yeah. Like, what's going on? And at the end of the meeting, he breaks down. He goes, um, uh, Tuck, I need to talk to you real quick. I'm like, yeah, coach. He said, uh, so I, uh, I've been told that during practice, we, we traded you to Cleveland. Now, Adam, I had already been cut three or four times in my career. So I I was like happy that I got traded. Traded like sounded cool. Yeah, yeah. I was like, traded? I said, for what? I have value? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Was like, I was like, for what? Yeah. And he said, I don't know, probably a bag of balls uh, was Skarnecchia's response. <laughs> and what's funny about it is I had told my agent I wanted to be traded to Cleveland because I was battling for like the eighth or ninth spot in New England. And Latrell's Bentley tore his knee for the Browns' first right. day. His so big I, signing after the Saints. So yeah. I went to Cleveland. They traded a conditional seventh-round pick for me, which is what only the elite players get traded for. Anytime a guy gets traded for a I conditional saw, seventh, I, I welcome him to the club. Like yeah. That's like my thing. I welcome him to the club, the exclusive club. So um, <laughs> the next day, or that night, I fly to um, Cle- I go in the cold tub, and like uh, Larry Izzo sees me in the cold tub. He's like, what are you going to do, piss in the cold tub? I'm like, no, I'm just getting my legs right for when I go there. And and Brady's in the cold tub, too, reading, like, the front page of the newspaper. Like, Brady's the only person I ever met that doesn't just read the sports section yeah. on NFL team. <laughs> He's reading, like, something. And he said, uh, and people are like, wait, what? He's like, I said, yeah, I just got traded to Cleveland. And I remember Brady's reaction was just kind of like, oh, man. Like, that's all he said. He kind of, like, looked up. He's like, Whew, oh, man. Like, and I don't know if he meant, like, 
oh man, you got to go to Cleveland, or oh man, like NFL is just crazy that like you could have just been out at practice, yeah, and now you're in the cold tub and you're traded to Cleveland. Yeah, so I fly to Cleveland and I'm starting for them right away next preseason game, like that quickly because of injuries. And you'll you'll appreciate this too. I get to Cleveland, okay, and you know Latrell's Bentley going down was a big deal. They signed him to a massive huge contract, huge. So I get there. By far the most reporters I've ever had around me after a practice. They, they, you know, it's middle of training. You have nothing else to talk about. You are the story of the moment. That day. Everybody I'm needs the story it. of that day. You are the whoa big off season. Yep. Right so, so I have like 12 cameras, eight, you know, all, all kinds of people around me, and they're asking me questions. Ross Tucker's veteran experience will help Brown's O-line adjust to winning ways <laughs> or some bullshit. Yeah. And what's funny about it is they're asking me, like, you know, you came from New England, like, what, what's your perception of the Browns? And I always, I always tell this story. I said, um, well, you know, I hear great things about Romeo Cornell. Uh, everybody in New England raves about him, so I'm happy to be here with him. Um, we've got some unbelievable young talent with Braylon Edwards and Kellen Winslow. Charlie Fry's an up-and-coming oh young quarterback. God. You know, um, it's, it's a really exciting time to be a Brown. I always tell the story because I say, like, if I could have told the truth, right, my exact response would have been, Romeo Cornell's way too nice of a head coach. That's not going to work. Maurice Carthon has no idea what he's doing as an offensive coordinator. Kellen Winslow and Braylon Edwards are punks who went offside four times in practice today. That's not going to work. I don't think Charlie Fry has a prayer in hell of being good. But you know what? They're going to pay me football. They're going to pay me money to play football in Cleveland this year. So I'm happy to be here. I like wish, that would have been. Like, I how wish awesome NFL would it be? Could do how that. awesome would it be if you could just tell the truth? That literally would have been what I said. I would have been like, this team's going to stink, but they're going to pay me money to play football in Cleveland, Ohio this year. So I'm thrilled to be here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. I would love it. That's why when we see a Jalen Ramsey or a Martellus Bennett or even Baker last last time when he made the Duke Johnson comments, a lot of the NFL established former players are like, that's not going to fly. You never talk about another man's money. Yeah. I at the time just went, Shit, man, Baker really is out here living like a cowboy and speaking that truth. Now, I know that's not going to last forever, but there's a reason why I love doing video segments or whatever with young guys before they're in the NFL. It's not beaten out of them yet. Yes. They're still, they still think that they can make that comment before the Georgia South Carolina game and get the the fans riled up and they get tweets and they get that dopamine that feels good. After a while in the NFL, it just, it gets sucked out of you. It does. Well, you just learn. And then the game ends, and then they want to join the media, and they need to bring it back all of a sudden. Right. They can't. The the hundred and ten percent doesn't work anymore. Right. You can't do that anymore. No. And but I, it's funny because where I sit with all the different podcasts and the radio show and stuff, I like when guys like Jalen Ramsey and Baker Mayfield say stuff like that. It it's great topics. Yes. But even like the stuff. Jalen did recently with, they're going to have to pay me an ungodly amount. They're not getting a discount. That just doesn't help you. No. I mean, you got suspended last year. And by the way, 
you got the fifth year option in 2020, so they might not even have to pay you next year. Like, why do you and think they could it, tag you after that? Right. Why do you think it is that they didn't pay you yet? Because you produ- you you put videos like that out yeah. there. It's just not smart. It's tough because I'm always at this crossroads. I want individuality. I like shit talkers. I love right. people speaking their truth. At the same time, business wise, it's always smarter to shut the fuck up. Yes. The only time it's worked is Antonio Brown. It's the only time. And I firmly believe that that blonde mustache and the mink coat and the hair and going to all these events, it was to convince the Steelers that he was not stable yes. and he should be moved. And to that, I applaud him. For so that. so it was you, great you believe strategy. it was really uh, all by design? The fact that the and day he signed about with, his mental stability at all. I think that the fact that the day he signed with the Raiders, the mustache came off and he shaved most of his head, I went, hmm... That's really interesting. It was the day he got to Oakland. I think you might be right. Because my, my thing is, uh, he's very eccentric. But people that work out three times a day, like I also think that he is, you talk about someone whose identity is wrapped up in their athletics. I think Antonio Brown is obsessed with that kind of stuff. He, he has changed so much. So I used to be the moderator of all the panels at the Rookie Symposium. And he was so different there. I even remember his first couple years in the league. He would come up to me on the field before the game, like, hey, what's up, man? Like, just like a normal, like, kid. And then a couple years ago, like, I had to interview him on the sideline, like, after a West of One game. And it was like, it it was like the Tom Cruise thing, standing on the couch for Matt Lauer. Like, it was like, wow, he's he's totally changed now. But at the same point, I think the thing that I try and remember is a lot of these guys enter the league at 21, 22 years old. And then they become stars at, like, 27. And then they become really stars at, like, 28, 29. And then when they're 30, their career's over. So for me, I think about how different I was at 22 to when oh. I was 27. And I think about how I wore suits all the time in Hastings, Nebraska. And I really didn't have that many opinions. And I wasn't even confident in my own opinions. And then I thought about when I was like got to New York at like 27. That's why I give these guys so much of a pass. Because the perf- it's, it, to me, it's more normal to be an Odell to be a very rich 25-year-old that wants to go to Monaco than it is to be a J.J. Watt who'd rather have a cabin in the woods and improve every day. Like, that's why we marvel over those people with work ethic. So I get more, I think the people that are the Tom Brady's, the J.J. Watt's, like the perfect people, they're more weird to me than people with flaws. Because every day I see people with flaws. Well, and I tell people all the time, there's no handbook for being young, famous, and rich. They, NFL does so many things to try to help these guys. Yes. But even like even like my buddies, okay, high school and college that are well-educated, they're like, man, how are those guys like that? You know, I know for a fact, I've seen my one buddy at Atlantic City try to double down on 37 cents. <laughs> All he had left was 37 cents. He told the blackjack dealer he wanted to double down. Yeah. Like, he, he also told the blackjack dealer that his grill was worth more than the blackjack dealer's life. Like, nice. I've seen my buddies right. in their 20s when they were not rich yeah. and they were not famous. Right. Like, I'm just telling you, if you took all my high school and college buddies and gave them, and gave them $10 million, million bucks and 
some of them would have done some real bad yes. things, real dumb things. It's easy when you've never been in that situation yes. to say, I also how think- do these guys do that stuff? I would never do that. Uh, why, why? When you got $20 million and you're going to go out there and get a Bentley, don't you understand that as soon as you drive it off the lot, it depreciates in value? And I want to be like, for, if you've never been able to afford a Bentley, you're not allowed to weigh in on this. Because the true thing is, these kids grew up and went, I'm going to be a star. What do you want him to put it into a fucking IRA? You want him to get like a five two nine and worry about his child's education? Like they're not living the same life as you. Right. They're living so that you can do that shit. They're going to do the crazy shit. Like I, that's my fear is that we're going to lose that because we've yelled at it so much and we've degraded it so much. Because of course it's smarter to save your money. Of course it is. But I like that some people are not. It doesn't have to be me. But I'm not going to badmouth them for it. Well, but if the, they ask me my advice, I would say I wouldn't do that. The funny thing about that is... But I'm glad that they do. The NFL has all these programs. Like, I remember one time the Patriots had, like, a session on estate planning. Yeah. Oh, wow. And um, I went in the room, and there was probably, like, eight guys there. Adam, it was literally... The, the starting five offensive linemen and the three quarterbacks. Yeah, and, and maybe the kicker. And the kicker. So that's number one. But number two, it was literally the eight or nine people... That needed it the least. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the eight or nine people that they're going to get somebody to help them with that stuff yes. then or in the future. Yes. They, the guys, the irony of it is the guys that really need the guidance yeah. don't go for the guidance. I know. It's the guys that don't need it yeah. that think, I'm going to get it anyway. I'm going to get the guidance anyway. We, we just assume that people with money have smart people around them taking care. And the true thing is, is a lot of people with money, especially if they've come from bad situations, have people around them that they trust, but they don't necessarily should trust them. You know Correct. what I mean? I, I remember asking Travis Henry in the cold tub, I was like, by the way, when you mentioned his name, what did he have like eight kids? So yeah. like Travis Henry was like one of those guys that I grew up when I was like, this guy's living the life right now. He, I, I think like. You probably get to well, you probably get to a certain point when you have like four or five. You're like, I'm just going all in. <laughs> Antonio Cromartie's like, I'm going for the record. So he, uh, the funny thing is, uh, Mike Pasillo, an offensive lineman with the Bills when I was there, he um, bought Travis's like Yukon. Okay. Um, like after a year for like 15 grand. Like Travis was not good with money, and not really a shocker. And he sold his Yukon. So then after we found out all the kids that Travis had, we used to bust Basilo's chops about how many of them, yeah, you know, were conceived, were, were in, the conceived in the Yukon. And then I saw him one time in the cold tub, and I said, um, I said, Travis, what, what are you doing like investment-wise? He said, what are you talking about, Tuck, like stocks and bonds? I said, yeah. He's like, don't know nothing about it. Don't know nothing about it. And I think a lot of the guys are like that. And I would, and I actually would say this to those guys. If you don't, then don't do anything with it yet. Yes. Just have it in the bank and don't just give it to somebody that you don't know if they know what they're doing. I actually got my Series 7 and 66 securities licenses while I was playing because I thought all the guys like on 401k day – would come and they'd hand me their formula, like, Tuck, fill this out for me. Tuck, fill this out for me. Anyway, yeah. so I thought, I'm going to be able to start financial advising while I'm a player. Mm. And then I had a back surgery, and then Buffalo cut me, and it ruined my whole plan. But I was going to be able to like start my next career. Because all those guys... You were going to be Andy Dufresne doing all of the guards yes. and, and inmates' taxes yes. while being a prisoner. Yes. That would have been amazing. All, all those guys really wanted 
it, all they really want is somebody that they trust. Yeah. And it's like they they knew I was willing to punch somebody in the head for them, like, and they knew I was quote unquote smart. So they it would have worked. I mean, it would have been really good, but then I got cut. And then when you're like, then you go to a new team. You don't have the trust yes. for those guys to say, hey, here's my I'm gonna, money. I'm going to take what you just said, and I'm going to turn this to the 33% really quick. I, in the last few weeks, have met with a financial advisor because, like what you were saying, it's not just football players. I think young people are intimidated by finances and money, yeah. and they hear about, you got to get in real estate. you got to get in the, the stock yeah. market. I'm just telling you guys, go to a place that's around you, a fidelity, something like that, and they'll give you like a free consultation. And they'll just show you where you are. So if I can turn this into actionable stuff for like non-football players, like if you feel as though you're behind, realize that it's all fucking okay. Just go and ask somebody. Yeah. That's the advice I'm going to give. Yeah. And and if you want, ask multiple people. Yes. Oh, don't just settle on one person. And make sure you see what the fees are and the hidden fees and then go with the person that you like. That felt useful. That was awesome. All right, good. That was good advice. Did you enjoy this? Awesome. I, c- I could literally do an hour and a half, but I've realized that we've already done like an hour and 25. It's unbelievable. So we could do like another four hours. Because I, I know I haven't touched on everything. Did you get the 200,000 yet? How long, how long are your podcasts? I didn't even realize they were- It really were... doesn't matter. It's the internet. Nothing matters. It's awesome. All right, Ross Tucker NFL on Twitter. And let's build the Instagram. What are you on Instagram? Uh, at Ross Tucker NFL. At Ross you Tucker NFL it. on both. Okay. Yep, I got the same thing. I need some Instagram people. All right, you want I some. post, hey, every game I go to, I post a video of the press box food. People love it. I, look, people I love have, the press box food. I have food. in here, Ross is obsessed with press box food spreads. We just didn't get to it today. You'll have to come back <laughs> Next again. Time. All right, uh, check out your podcast. Just type in Ross Tucker. Ross Tucker you're... football podcast, and there's a bunch. You go to RossTucker.com, you can see all. You like gambling, you like fantasy, I got it and for you. And he does a podcast with Evan Silva, so you know it's good. Yes, fantasy feed. Yes. All right. Ross, you're the man. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate you. Homies, holla, holla, holla. We'll talk to you later. 33%. You are the shit. We'll see you soon.